Good morning. This, as I mentioned in the beginning of the service, is the first Sunday of Lent, and you'll notice in your order of worship that we'll have a new sermon series over the next few weeks uh, during this season of Lent, a chance for us to reflect on God's work for us and the person of Christ. Now, before we read our passage from Ephesians 2, I just want us to start around the question of, of thinking about what is the spiritual life? You know, what does it look like or what does it mean for us to in some way connect to that hidden or mysterious reality that there's something other than ourselves? There might be all sorts of answers that come to mind or all sorts of answers or images in our culture around us. I want to mention three quick images that Psalm 107 offers us. This psalm says, it is like one on a great journey, finding her path and settling in a great city. It is like stepping out of the darkness, leaving behind chains, leaving behind bars that you might be free. It is like a sailor of a ship navigating the mighty and the uncertain seas, finding the desired haven of rest. Now, I mention those images because as we think about them as the possibility of what our experience of connecting to that kind of hidden and mysterious reality, it's possible that we can conclude that such experiences belong to those who have strong legs, a keen sense of direction. Such experiences of having meaning or a spiritual life belongs to those who know how to break chains or pick locks, make their way through dark places. Those who have courage to face the waves with a steady hand. Aren't we those who forge our own destinies? Aren't we who determine our steps. Well, if you're like me, that is kind of the air that we breathe, that somehow it's up to us and our strength and our wisdom to put together the pieces of life and to find meaning. But that is not the way the Scriptures talk about the spiritual life. If we look at the New Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures, we're invited over and over again, if we want to think about how to connect with the hidden or mysterious realities of this world, The starting place or the core, the center, is God's intervention for us. Not our strength or our navigating, not our picking of the lock, but God's intervention for us. And so if you fall back further in Psalm 107, we can hear the full pictures of those images. We were like those wandering in desert wastelands, finding no city where to settle, hungry and thirsty, but God rescued us leading us to a place to settle. We are like those who sat in darkness in the deepest gloom, prisoners suffering in chains. The Lord rescued us out of our distress, breaking that which held us, opening the door out of the darkness. We were like those on the sea, afraid of the waves up and down, giving up hope. But God stilled the storm to a whisper, and guided us to the desired haven. God is the one who rescues the lost, frees the captive, brings peace to those who are afraid. In this Lent, our sermon series, I want us to to dwell and to really think about this reality that our path forward, especially into meaning, into the hidden realities of this world, are not through our strength, but through God acting for us. And even on our side, recognizing our need for God to act. Therefore, we're going to look at a series of passages from the Apostle Paul. 
One of the things in his letter is that on a numerous occasion, he describes our situation, our needs, and then he offers these transitional words, but now, or but God. And our situation of need is transformed into one in which God has acted for us and brought forth a new reality. And our passage this morning, Ephesians 2, is one of the prime examples of this, this transitional language that there was a condition before Christ and there was a condition after Christ that acted for us. So we'll see that in our passage this morning, and I hope it will be a chance for us to see ourselves honestly, but also for us to be moved by God's grace and love for us. So let's look at our passage from Ephesians 2. This is verse 1 through 10. You can follow in your order of worship, or if you have a Bible with you, you can follow there in the Bible. This is Paul writing by the Spirit to the church in Ephesus. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonder of the good news that this passage proclaims to us. We pray that you'd help us to receive it by faith and that we would find peace in rest, and hope in you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction, as we read as well, I hope you saw that there is this strong contrast, right, that you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together in Christ. In our sermon this morning, we'll have two parts. First, we'll look at that, the first part, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, and the second part, but God has acted for us in Christ. So this is how our passage starts. Paul, writing to this church in Ephesus, states their situation, you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. As we move through the passage, the place that we can start is to see that this is a very personal statement. You, you were dead. Paul doesn't write about it in an abstract manner, but says, you, you experienced this. To be dead here does not mean that we or others always did the worst possible thing, or there was never anything positive or good, but rather it's describing our spiritual condition, this radical reality within us that we're separated from God, and that in our very being flows out not obedience, but sin. The wages of sin is death. The fruit of breaking God's law is death. 
The consequence of disobeying God's goodness and not trusting His Word is separation. We were created to live in union with God. And out of this union to live at peace with ourselves and with others and with God's world. But our sin and trespasses brings isolation and separation from God and from ourselves and from others and even from the world that God made for us. And so Paul says that you, you were dead. And we should be careful to see his language. This is not just Paul being judgmental of this particular church, not standing over judgment that he's really disappointed just in the Ephesians. Do you see how he he describes it? This is the spirit of disobedience in which we all once lived. In which we all once lived. Paul does not leave himself out of the picture. and He doesn't leave us out either. This picture of spiritual death describes us all. We, all all humanity, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, by nature guilty before a holy God. And if you're like me, these words can be challenging. It's common, I think, in our world, maybe even in our own way of thinking about things, it's common to think that there's not much wrong with the human race, or at least with us in particular, those I like or something, you know, like me. And from this perspective, we don't see very much need for God's intervention. Rather than think about death, we might think of spirituality as simply getting out of a tight spot, a way to let go of stress, needing advice or motivation or inspiration. And from this point of view, Jesus is simply offering good advice to good people seeking to live good lives. But I want us to dwell for a moment and see that this is not the way that Paul is describing our condition in this passage. That there is a fundamental break, a fundamental problem in each of us, is what God's Word is telling us. Let's think for a moment longer about that reality I came across an author who was describing an experience, and I saw it connected to this passage. This author talks about getting a series of directions that he was going to follow as he drove to meet someone for dinner. Now, you have to appreciate this. You have to either say that this person's phone had died, or he had never heard of Google Maps. You know, for some of you, you remember the time before there was you know, phones telling you exactly where to go. But this person wrote down the directions. He wrote them down. Started out on the drive, he says, but I managed to get on the wrong expressway, or rather, it was the right expressway, but I was going in the wrong direction on it. And since the directions had said to me, go about 10 miles or so before looking for the sign, for the exit, since I had that length of time, I didn't really worry where I was going until I had gone about 12 or 15 miles and none of the signs were making sense. And so I turned off the road and asked at a gas station for help. I was totally in the wrong part of the city, he said. Now, this is not my words, but I did have this experience driving around Indianapolis one time, getting on the wrong direction on the Beltway, wondering why I just kept going and going and never finding my exit. And I did, this was before phones, I did stop at a gas station for help. The author writes, I had been driving confidently, believing I was doing the right thing, but with every minute, I was going further and further away from where I wanted to be. 
such an image, such a picture of us driving with confidence illustrates these opening verses. We live in a world where humans left to themselves not only choose the wrong direction, but remain confident that in fact it is the right one. We know this, right? That we regularly point as evidence of it being the right one how confident we are or how meaningful or sincere we are about it. Aren't the desires and aspirations that we find deep within ourselves the most important signs or markers that we're going the right way? Well, the reality that our passage invites us to get a hold of is that it is possible that we have deep desires. It is true that we have deep desires that unless checked, unless said no to, lead us to disaster. They are poor guides and that we can be sincerely wrong. The reality which our passage is pointing to us is that in the course of this world, the air we breathe encouraging us to go a certain way is attractive, but does not lead us to where we were made to go. See, Paul is saying there are forces at work outside of us, compelling us to see things wrongly. You can think about the words telling us to life is found in accumulating possessions, or it's in commitment to pleasure, or it's in chasing the approval of others. That there is the prince of the air, the lies in the world in which we breathe, leading us in false paths. But not only are there forces around us, there are forces and powers at work in us. The desires of our body and our minds, a way of saying all of us aren't reliable. The desires can be twisted and corrupt characterized by self-regard or pride, by appetites that make us disregard others, or attach us to objects unworthy of our devotion. These forces around us and in us lead to this reality that we are by nature children of wrath, children of disobedience. This radical corruption, it's not just on the surface, an occasional wrong step, but our, our core, that we are dead. Jesus himself pushed us to think about the depth of our need. When talking about the Pharisees, he said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but rather he wants us to have a righteousness that goes beyond just the surface, beyond just religious observation, that Jesus has a righteousness at our very core is what we need. And in order for us to wrestle with that, he tells us about the Ten Commandments again. He pushes us beyond appearance to the heart of the matter. He says, you heard it said you shall not murder. But if you hate your brother or sister in your heart, you have killed them. If you speak hateful words to them, it is as if you have broken God's law in your heart. Even further says, Jesus says, to love your enemy. That if you love just those who love you, that counts as nothing. Even sinners do that. You've heard it say, do not commit adultery. But if you look at another person with lust in your heart, you have violated God's purposes for them and for you. See, Jesus is inviting us to this reality that lets go of self-righteousness, that we can find hope in God. 
We're invited to consider for ourselves and all that we are by nature children of wrath. Wrath meaning here apart from God's grace that we stand on our own with our hearts exposed. Wrath apart from God acting for us that we are dead and subject to the forces in us and forces around us. We might ask, why are such a hard view of humans? Why such a hard view on humanity? And what I just want us to think for a moment is that this is actually a very high view of life. Saying that your choices, your decisions, your life matters and has consequences. And also the way others treat you, especially when they hurt you or misuse you, it matters. God says that these things matter. And our passage does not invite us just to spiritual enhancement, but says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. And what hope can there be for one who is dead? That leads us to the second part of our sermon, the transitional word that Paul says is that we were hopeless but God. That we were dead, but God rescued us precisely when we could do nothing to help ourselves. A dead person cannot make himself or herself alive. Here is the good news. This is the wonder and the core of the spiritual life, that we are dead in the sins and trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which, which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. I want us, the rest of our time, to dwell on that proclamation. First, God made us alive in Christ. The people who belong to Jesus through faith are united to him. So what is true of him is true of us. When we see that at the heart of the gospel, God took on flesh. The God of heaven and earth took on flesh. He entered into our suffering, into our humanity, even bore our sin and trespasses, even bore our death. He took us onto himself. But God raised him up. God raised him up. And he has been raised, and by faith, so have you. God raised us up with him. Jesus has been installed in glory in the heavenly realms. So have you, our passage says. After the resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at God's right hand, the place of glory and of authority, the name above all names. That Jesus, the one the world rejected, has been vindicated as true life. And you, in faith, you are now seated with him in the heavenly realms. This is the secret truth of the gospel, the, the wonder, the hidden mystery of God acting for us in Christ. To alive here means that we are no longer separated due to sin, we're no longer con condemned, no longer standing alone to face the consequences of our failures, but that we are united to God. And that union cannot be broken, for it rests in the ascended and glorified Christ at God's right hand. That we stand as one fully accepted by God. I was at Walgreens the other day, and they have all their Easter candy out, just in case you want to get a head start on your Easter candy. And the wonder of wonders, as I was walking through, I saw a full pallet. There's a spot in the back of Walgreens by my house where they put all the stuff in, all the, all the shipments, a full pallet of Reese's peanut butter eggs. 
Now, I don't know if you guys like those. Those are wonderful. My daughter Lila shared one with me the other day. But there was an immeasurable amount <laughs> of peanut butter eggs. And it might be a silly way to think of this, but that picture, like, I can't even imagine eating all those eggs. And that's the language that Paul is, is saying here. If we try to even imagine this kindness towards us, it is immeasurable. This, this kindness that God has shown us in Christ, it is an overflowing, a super overflowing grace that covers our sin, that speaks life into our death, that when all those other people would stand up to condemn us or say what is wrong, or even our own hearts seek to condemn us, that there is an overflowing grace that silences them. First, God made us alive with Christ, and second, Paul stresses over and over again, it is by grace you have been saved. This immeasurable riches is not because you did something, but it's because of God's mercy and love for you. The remarkable thing, right? God's love is not reserved for the strong, those who have good sense of direction, not for the righteous. Rather, he pours out his love on those who walk in trespasses and sin. I'm sure some of you are even wondering this morning, can it really be true that God would forgive me? Because you know, God see into my very being and the things I'm struggling with even now, how could God love me? And this passage is proclaiming clearly it is by grace you have been saved. It is a gift. Do you see how it's repeated? It's like a message to us when we can't take hold of it. We don't know for sure we can. It's Paul's repeating it over and over again. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. This is not your doing. It is a gift, not a result of your works. No boasting. It's almost as if Paul has to remind himself as well. This is too good to be true. How can it be that God would give us this gift? that we are alive because of his mercy and love for us. And it's his gift to turn away wrath and the consequences of our sin. We gather as those who put our faith in Christ. C.S. Lewis, when talking about friendship, writes, friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. And our passage speaks to us personally, but it also invites us as a community to look at each other and say that we're not the only ones. Our passage humbles us and unites us to speak the truth about our sin. None of us in this room are righteous before God, that we are sinners. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our passage also humbles us and unites us by speaking of God's grace. God's gift is such that no one can boast. There's no place in the church or in our relationships for one of us to stand above the other in righteousness. For the gospel of grace is an even and level ground in which we acknowledge our need together and in which we rejoice together in God's grace for us. I pray that today and throughout Lent, that we would be courageous enough to confess our need and that we would in wonder, by faith, take hold of the gift of God in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. And Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Lord, we thank you that it is immeasurable beyond what we can really fully grasp, that there's no end to your gift to us. 
We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.